farm stores. Does anyone remember farm stores? You know, I looked them up. I think they're still trying to be around. Yeah, okay, so there it is. Some of those, they're, they're, they're here and there. But he would stop off and bring us home a treat. Usually the treat was one of two things. It was either a half a gallon of farm stores ice cream, which I can't tell you how good it was or not. Just you're a kid, it's ice cream, it's good. Or a can of Charles chips. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, back in those days, we didn't stock, you know, bags and bags and bags full of snacks. It was a treat. And so we bring home this big can. They came in these big metal cans, and you could drum on them after they're done, and they made this great sound. You're boom, when you open them up, and he would bring home Charles Chips. And I could still remember waiting for him to come home and then hoping it was going to be one of those nights when he brought home a treat. I didn't know what he did, but I certainly paid attention when it meant that I was going to get something out of it. I just thought you should know that. Now, actually, there's a reason I'm sharing this with you. And I'm sharing it with you because it's a good illustration of the way that many of us, when we begin our faith journeys, it's a good illustration of the way that many of us approach God. Think about it this way. We begin our prayers. We start off, Heavenly Father. That's the way I like to start, usually. Heavenly Father or or Dear God. I think I said it a few weeks ago. I just came back from a a youth retreat with our youth group. And the young lady up on stage began her prayers. Hey, God, you're awesome. I mean, okay. It's enthusiastic. So we start off that way, but then we usually jump into, okay, what do I get? What do you got for me, God? Or, God, I need this, or I need that, or whatever. That's the approach. We we, we go to God because he's going to give us stuff. And there's a problem with that approach when it comes to a relationship with God. And when you think about it, there's a problem with that approach when it comes to a relationship with anyone. Because it's really impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone when you're constantly trying to get something from them. If you have an agenda, that agenda becomes primary and the relationship just becomes conditional. I'll love you, I'll be connected to you, if, 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 if you'll give me, if you'll give me, if I can get. As long as you want something from someone, you can't have an intimate, authentic relationship with them. Well, the Apostle John figured that out a long time ago, and he explained it to us by telling us how God has already given us everything we need, because God has already given us himself. And if that doesn't sound all that compelling to you at this moment, then I've got a message for you. And by the way, if that message isn't all that compelling to you, if it makes you feel any better, you're not the only one. Just knowing in your head that God gave himself to you isn't initially at least very compelling to anyone. Just knowing intellectually that God showed up on earth because he cared so much about us, it seems a bit disconnected. It seems a bit distant. It seems a bit disconnected from our reality. Like, what the heck does that have to do with my day-to-day life? But when that fact moves from our head down to our hearts, everything changes. And today we're going to see that when this truth moves from your head to your heart, you'll be equipped 
to remain faithful even when things in your life aren't okay. When the truth that God actually showed up and gave himself for us goes from your head to your heart, you'll know that God always has a purpose, even in the random, seemingly meaningless pains and sorrows and disappointments in life. You interested? Let's pray, and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for bringing people with love in their hearts, with open minds, with open hearts, with a need to get to know you better. So God, as we continue on, as we study your word this morning, we would ask that you would use it to change us in a mighty way so that we can bring you glory. We thank you for this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in part four of our series, Bystander, John and the Rabbi from Nazareth. And what we're doing in this series is a Quick reminder is we're following the Apostle John as he journeyed along with Jesus. Now, earlier in the series, and if you've missed anything from the series, go to hammockstreetchurch.com, pull down the series, they're all up there. You can go to our YouTube channel as well. All the YouTube videos are up there. But we talked about something John said at the end of his book. We talked about how John had an agenda for writing his gospel. He wasn't just giving us historical knowledge. He had a point. He had an agenda. He had something he wanted to accomplish. And we saw that as a part of his agenda, John did not want us to be confused about Jesus. John wanted us to know that he did not simply follow Jesus because of blind faith. That's not the only reason he followed Jesus. Faith had something to do with it for sure, but it wasn't just blind faith. He followed Jesus because of what he saw and what he heard. And it was what he saw and what he heard that actually convinced him of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, which convinced them then him to go on further and place his faith in Jesus. And John wanted his audience both at the time he wrote his gospel, the immediate audience, and his audience that would come later, which includes us, to, after reading his gospel, after reading his account of the story, to see what he saw and hear what he heard so that we would arrive at the same conclusion about Jesus that he did. That's what he did. That's why he told us all of that, so we could see it. He's a firsthand witness, and we say, wow, got it. As an old man, John recorded this account. Interesting, after last week's message and actually after the week before his message, people came up to me and asked whether John actually wrote down this gospel message himself or whether he had help. That is a fantastic question. For those of you who noticed that, it means you're kind of tracking along here. You're going, wait a minute, Fisherman wrote something like this? This is pretty cool, pretty impressive. Well, scholars actually believe that John, given his advanced age, He was quite old when he wrote his gospel. And given the fact that he didn't have a formal education, it's very likely that John dictated his gospel to a scribe or to a writer who then wrote it down or recorded it for him. That would have been the custom at the time anyway. All right, as we've been discussing, John took his gospel and he organized it around seven events. And these seven events weren't just merely random acts of kindness that Jesus performed, but they were signs. They were specific signs. They were signs that pointed to 
Signs that evidenced the fact that Jesus was exactly who Jesus said he was. And Jesus performed those signs for a reason. He performed those signs in order to confirm his own identity as the Messiah. And John wanted future generations like us to know that and to see that in the way that he knew that and that he saw that. But he didn't do it so we would just know the things Jesus did. He wanted us to know who Jesus is. Because recognizing who Jesus is has the power to reframe an entire life. Now, at the end of John's gospel, essentially he said this, let me tell you why I wrote what I wrote. I wrote what I wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? That's the question. You may have what? That's the question that the first century people were asking. And maybe that's the question that you're asking. If I believe in Jesus, what do I get? Or maybe you didn't get the answer you wanted before in church and eventually you just quit asking. Or maybe you're beginning now to question your faith. You're thinking, what am I getting out of this anyway? The question, what do I get out of this? And that's going to be kind of where the tension is that we'll feel in the story this morning as we consider the fourth sign in this series in John's Gospel. So, today's sign comes from really one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament. Today's sign is the feeding of the 5,000. That's what we know it as in our Bibles. And remember this, when the Bible was translated, it didn't have the chapter numbers and the verse numbers attached to it. Those are really added by the editors later so we could navigate around and find stuff inside the Bible. But in front of this particular passage, the subtitle is oftentimes Jesus Feeds the 5,000. So that's kind of how we know of it. But before we take a look at that, I want to give you a quick recap of where we've been. When we left off last week, Jesus was down south in the Holy Land. He was in Jerusalem. So from there, he and the disciples headed back up north to where they were from, to the region of Galilee. It was about a six-day walk from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee. And when they arrived, they took a boat to the northernmost shore of the Sea of Galilee, which put them, just so you get a perspective, about 100 miles away from Jerusalem. So that's how far they had traveled. Now, from reading the scripture, it appears that one of the reasons they made the trek was because they heard, they heard that King Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist. Okay, so their buddy John the Baptist, the guy that had baptized Jesus, he was beheaded by King Herod Antipas. And that was unsettling to them. So Jesus needed a bit of a break from all the chaos. So he decided to take the disciples up to a remote corner of Judea. But people were following Jesus' whereabouts. People knew he was out there. People were interested in what he was doing. So word got out. Which takes us to John chapter 6, verse 2. If you have a Bible, open up. This is the New International Version translation. Any translation will work for you. I'll read. And a great crowd of people followed Jesus because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So this is where our story today picks up. No matter where Jesus went, he drew a crowd. But now there's a question. Did they follow him Because they believed in him or had faith in him at that point? No, that's not why they followed him. They followed him 
And it tells us why in this verse. They followed him because they believed, they had, or because they had seen the signs he had performed. That's why they followed him. They didn't have faith yet. They didn't believe in him yet, but they saw he performed signs. What they had seen and what they had heard is why they followed. And remember, it was what John saw and what John heard that ultimately led to John believing. So they're on the path. But now picture this. Jesus and the disciples went to great lengths. They walked 100 miles to get away from the crowds. But notwithstanding, it didn't work. The crowds followed them anyway. Thousands of people showed up where they were. It's likely that the people who showed up had never seen or heard about Jesus before. But, but they found out that this, this miracle man was somewhere close by, and they made a beeline to check it out. They were probably told there might be some hype, and they wanted to see what the hype was about. So Jesus, from his vantage point on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, saw this mass of people heading his way. We go to verse 3, and Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. Okay, the guys needed a break. So he's trying to go further and further north and higher and higher on a mountain just to get the break. Then John continues. And, and before he continues, he gives us this kind of random detail that actually is going to make more sense in a few minutes. So just hang on. But here's, here's what John said in, in verse 4, the next verse. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Okay? Just so you know that. It's in there. Hold on to that thought. Now, if you've been a part of Hammock Street for a minute, you, you know that Passover is the Jewish celebration of God's delivering Israel from the bondage in Egypt when God sent Moses to lead the people to the promised land. Remember that? Talk about that once in a while. In the first century, Passover was also an annual reminder that the nation of Israel needed somebody like Moses. Remember Moses, the one who led the Jews out of Egypt into the promised land or to the promised land. They needed another Moses to come along and free God's people from under the oppressive Roman rule that they were experiencing. Okay, so that's verse 4. Just hold that thought in the back of your mind. We're going to go on to verse 5. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. Right? That's how I know all those things that I said to you. Oh, no, a crowd was coming. How do we know? Here it is, verse 5. Jesus saw it. So here's the scene. Jesus and the disciples are trying to get away and rest in the middle of nowhere. And they look up and they see this mass of people, this great crowd coming toward them. They knew that those people wanted something from them. Those people came because they wanted to see signs and they wanted to see something encouraging. So as they braced themselves for this crowd's arrival, it's like, all right, no break today, no nap time today. These guys are coming and they want something. Jesus turns to one of the disciples. Jesus turns to Philip. And he asked Philip something that Philip does not expect at all. Here's what he says in verse 6. Jesus said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Okay, massive crowd coming on up. They're trying to get away. They're trying to take a break. Massive crowd. Jesus says, hey, Phil, where should we buy bread for these people to eat, all these people? And Philip's going to be thinking, wait, 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 what? Like, what? They're going to get a break from the crowds. And the next thing you know, Jesus just accepts the fact that they're about to have thousands and thousands of uninvited guests for lunch. And Jesus starts thinking, how am I going to feed all these people? 
Now, feeding thousands of people was certainly the last thing on the disciples' minds. But that said, this was a scene that the disciples were used to by this point in some regard. Huge crowds showed up wherever Jesus went. And those huge crowds who showed up wherever Jesus went always wanted something from him. They wanted healing. They wanted help. They wanted relief. They wanted stuff. But up until this moment, food had never been a part of the equation. They didn't just come to him to get food. But today, on that day, Jesus was going to feed everybody. Everybody? Thousands of people? Now, I'm sure Philip was confused when he heard Jesus say, okay, Phil, you know, where do I get bread? And he he had me thinking, wait a minute, we're feeding people now? That's what we're doing? Boss, that's not what we do. We don't feed people. What are you talking about? Well, as you might imagine, it's not exactly as that appeared. See, Jesus wasn't really asking Philip to figure out how to feed them all. How do I know that? The rest of verse 6. Jesus asked this only to test Philip. Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. So you see what he's doing here? He's, he's still teaching lessons no matter what is going on. So Philip replied, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. In other words, Philip's answer to Jesus' question was, boss, there is nowhere around here that we can buy that much bread. There's just nowhere around it. We can't do it. Some people have speculated that Jesus asked Philip because Philip was from that area, who's from the region, which would make him the logical person to ask about all the local bread vendors and stores and restaurants, right? Yelp had not been invented yet. You couldn't just look it up. Where do I get bread around here, right? Well, next to speak up was Andrew. And Andrew, another disciple, he noticed a young kid, a boy who had pushed his way up to the front of the crowd, and he was carrying his lunch pail or his lunch bag, or his lunchbox. Like a howdy-doody lunchbox, I'm always thinking, right? Okay. So, verse 9, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now, here's a little detail that maybe you've never considered before. Why bother telling us that it was barley loaves, barley bread? Well, barley bread was a type of bread eaten by the poor folks, eaten by the common people. The rich people would have eaten wheat bread. And the fish, did you ever think about this? Was he walking around with just two raw fish in his bag? No, of course not. Those fish would have been pickled or smoked because that would have been customary. That's how you carried fish around. Couldn't just carry just a raw fish around in your bag. This wasn't Japan. This was Israel, okay? So they're carrying around smoked fish or pickled fish. That's how you preserve those things. And so that's what they had. Poor people bread and pickled or smoked fish. Now, Andrew certainly knew that five small barley loaves and a couple of preserved fish were not enough to feed thousands. So it's fairly easy to assume that there was a bit of sarcasm in his response. Jesus says, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? And he said, hey, there's a kid with a couple of fish and a few crumbs of bread. Maybe he can help us out right? That, that's sarcastic, which is what's so cool about the Bible. I love that the Jewish sarcasm was just coming through there. But Jesus wasn't kidding. And he said this, more, more instructions, please have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. A couple things here. First off, think about this. 
Isn't it strange that Jesus had everybody sit down? What would that require? It would require servers. Someone would have to go around to all these thousands of people sitting down and serve them. And it's not like there were a few hundred servers traveling with them, is it? It's not like they had waiters and waitresses that were ready to serve a mob of people, to give a mob of people table service. I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense to have the people at least line up? Would have. Also note that here, John gave us the first indication of just how many people there were in the crowd. So John told us that there were 5,000 men. That's significant for a few reasons. John wasn't telling us that there were 5,000 men because women and children didn't matter or weren't significant. That's not why he said it. Some surmise that 5,000 men would also have been the number necessary to comprise a full Roman legion. So a Roman legion, a legion of Roman soldiers, would have been 5,000 soldiers. That's going to be relevant in a moment. But for now, know that 5,000 men meant that there were also women and children, so add women and add children, that points to the fact that there were likely about fifteen to 20,000 people that were sitting in the grass. Now it's looking like a huge concert on the lawn, isn't it? Just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. That's a lot of people who are going to be fed with five barley loaves and two stinky fish. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks. Now, before we move on, I always like to pause when it says Jesus gave thanks because we, we have to imagine what went on here. Jesus and the disciples and everybody else who was sitting up front probably, or Jesus started to pray and everybody sitting by him heard him pray, but they were probably looking around and thinking or maybe even whispering to each other, he's lost it. What is going on here? He's acting like he's going to feed this massive crowd, this crowd of fifteen or 20,000 people with five loaves of peasant bread. That would be far more unlikely than me telling everyone, I'm going to feed you all lunch today, but this is all I have to feed you. An olive. Can you imagine me saying, okay, lunch today after church, I've got an olive. You have a can of olives? No, I have an olive. Like, imagine me asking everyone to bow our heads, bow our heads. Let's give thanks for the one olive that I'm about to share with all of you. Dear God. Right? Anyway, Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks, and he distributes to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. Now, by the way, again, I'd like to point out that Jesus gave thanks. The prayer for the bread, we know what that is. Baruch Same prayer. Prayed that prayer over the barley loaves. The prayer over the fish. Which means, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, at whose word all came to be. So Jesus says those prayers that we say all the time. And Jesus, and I'm assuming he had help here. There were 15,000, 20,000 people. Jesus and the others distributed the bread and the fish. Now, by the way, if you've ever served a large crowd, it takes a while, right? It doesn't take two seconds. It takes a while. A crowd this size, it would take hours. And then something during this time, miraculous, happened. What happened? Verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Five loaves of bread, small ones, two pickled or smoked fish, 20,000 people, leftovers. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. They spent hours and hours feeding this massive crowd, and then they filled buckets and baskets with leftovers. And John was there, and he knew, man, this is another one of those signs. And the people knew it too. They knew it was a sign too. In fact, many knew the story of how their ancestors... The ancient Israelites had experienced something similar. Now, we can read about that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, chapter 16. We're not going to read that today. But in the story, God's people were in the desert, and they were crying out for food. They went to God for food. Remember that? They cried out for food. And what did God provide them? Manna. Remember, he gave them manna? He gave them just enough manna every day to satisfy their needs. You couldn't keep the manna, the scripture tells us. It, it rotted overnight. So it was just enough for the day. But Jesus came along and he does Moses one better. He one-ups Moses. He feeds the people until they're stuffed and he gave them doggy bags. Okay? He provided extra that would last them for however long to come. And as a result, the people started to think, who is this guy? After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Who is this guy? Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So think about it. For that moment, they were no longer hungry, and they began to consider who Jesus might be. And they recognized, hey, he might be the one we've been told about all our lives. He might be the one that Moses spoke of. This might be the one that Daniel the prophet spoke of when he said the Son of Man will come. Just for a moment, just for a brief second, they saw it. But Jesus knew that their recognition in that moment, that their acknowledgement in that second was only temporary because Jesus still had work to do. So we keep moving on. Verse 15, next verse. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, I always talk about the fact that, you know, your political bent doesn't have any place in the church and we shouldn't be talking about these things and all that. Jesus was given the opportunity to be the political ruler of the place and he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, this is the foreshadowing that I referred to earlier. Many were of the opinion that if the first prophet Moses was able to deliver them from Egypt, certainly the second prophet, perhaps this rabbi from Nazareth, would be able to deliver them from bondage to Rome. And there stood in front of Jesus about fifteen to 20,000 people, 5,000 men, the equivalent of a Roman legion. And the people started doing the math. Okay, hmm, there's 5,000 people here. And they start marching south back toward Jerusalem. They'll certainly double their numbers by the time they leave this state, the Galilee region. They'll certainly be up to 10,000 men by the time they get down there. And following that logic, by the time they're halfway down to Jerusalem, their numbers are certainly going to grow again. And probably by the time they make that 100-mile journey all the way back down to the gates of Jerusalem, there'll be as many people among us as four Roman legions. So imagine they're thinking, we're going to lead four Roman legion-sized groups of people to, Jesus, to, 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 to conquer the city. Four legions for Jesus. That's going to be our army. I mean, they're thinking this could be the time that they've waited their entire lives for. Their prayers and the prayers of their ancestors and their ancestors would have finally been answered. 
The, the people were all thinking, we can dispense with the Romans once and for all. And Jesus knew all of this. He knew what they were thinking. And he would one day lead his disciples to the gates of Jerusalem during Passover. He would do that one day, but not the way that they were picturing. Because Jesus wouldn't be coronated. He would be crucified. Jesus knew their hearts, though, and he knew their intent. And Jesus knew their motives, and he knew that those motives had very little to do with who he was. And their motives had very little to do with what he had come to do. He knew that their motives had everything to do with what they wanted Jesus to do for them. That's why Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Now, before he left the crowd, he gathered up the 12. He took the disciples, put them back together, and he put them on a boat. Now, for this part of the story, we're going to jump to Matthew's gospel just for a few verses just to get the extra picture here. So in Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes, Immediately Jesus made the disciples, by the way, made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So the crowd was fired up and was fired up thinking Jesus is finally going to lead us. He's going to lead us triumphantly into Jerusalem. So they're like fired up. He's going to do this. Jesus is getting ready to go off on his own. And before he went off on his own, Jesus needs to make sure that the disciples don't get all caught up in the hype, don't get all caught up in this movement, this swell that's going on that's saying, okay, we're going to go and take Jerusalem. So he orders the disciples to get in a boat and push away from the scene and to get the heck out of there so they're not influenced by the crowd anymore to go to the other side of the lake where he tells them he'll meet them. Then, Matthew 14, 23, after Jesus dismissed the disciples, then he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. All right, so we know in this story, we're not going to focus on it here, but if you've read this part of the Bible, you know Jesus that night would walk on the water. And he'd meet the disciples who were still in the boat, but they were still away from the shore. And they rode into the shore together. And maybe Jesus thought, okay, I'll get some peace on the other side of the lake. But that's not what happened, right? So we go back to John's gospel, verse 22. The next day, so maybe he had a good night's sleep. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that that only one boat had been there. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So we can assume that the crowd that met Jesus on the other side of the lake was also quite large. But Jesus was about to thin the herd just a little bit. So here's what we read in John 6.25. When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, by the way, did they really care when Jesus got there? You think he was writing this down? Oh, 7 o'clock in the morning? Oh, okay, thanks. No, that that wasn't the question that was on their minds. And we know by Jesus' response what they really wanted, and his words cut them to the quick. Here's what Jesus answers them. He says, very truly I tell you. Now remember, when he winds up with a very truly I tell you, you're going to get some truth. He says, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because I fed you. But because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus said to them, you're not looking for me for the right reasons. You're looking for me for all the wrong reasons. You're looking for me because you're hungry and I gave you a meal. 
You thought that was the whole point of the exercise, but it wasn't. You didn't realize it was a sign, and it was a sign pointing to something much bigger and much better. And then it seems like Jesus' tone changes here. And it seems like as we move on, Jesus goes from symbolic to tangible. He moves from the journey to the destination. And whenever I try and picture it in my mind's eye, I think Jesus goes, he clears his throat. He's going to say something important. And he puts on his authoritative Jesus voice. And he says, do not work. No, I don't know. He didn't say that. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. You see how this went from real practical to, whoa, what are we doing here? This is a lesson here. Which the Son of Man will give you. By the way, Son of Man is the title for, for Jesus, for the God on earth. Actually, a son of God is really referring to a man. It's kind of confusing that way, but that's how that works. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is essentially saying to them, don't you realize what I'm offering you? Don't you realize who I am? God has approved me. God has authorized me. God has authorized me to work on his behalf. Don't you realize, people, that something monumental is happening right here in your midst? Something that is so much more And my feeding you lunch. Verse 28. Then they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? Okay. Didn't they just see him feed 20,000 people with a few pieces of fish and a little bit of bread, but they need one more sign. So they said to him, all right, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for us? We're going to look at this next week. This is the if-only argument. You know the if-only argument? I would believe in God if only he would do whatever. I would get more involved in church if only God would whatever. I would tithe if only God would do one more thing. I would do whatever if only God would do something else. But for today, this was a group of people who'd just been a part of something, the likes of which they'd never seen before in their lives, and they were saying, if only, if only, if you could only do one more trick for us. And then something came to them. Verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Oh, look, told you we were coming back here. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus just talked about that, didn't he? But Jesus must have been thinking, ah, again, you're back to food? You people don't get it. And they didn't get it yet. They were literally face to face with the Messiah, with God the Son, and they were still only thinking about what's in it for me. They were still like I was as a little kid who ran to the door when my dad got home just to ask him, hey, dad, what'd you get for me? How do I get it? How do I get what you brought home, dad? These people were standing at the edge of the Sea of Galilee in the presence of the light of the world, in the presence of Jesus, God who became a man. And all they could think about was, I'm a little hungry. In fact, as John 6 concludes... We see how they simply couldn't get past their own immediate immediate physical needs because notwithstanding the fact that Jesus revealed to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Here's the lesson he tried to teach, and he also said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the manna now. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He told them that. He was clear, but it wasn't good enough for them. Because once Jesus stopped giving them the perishable gifts that they craved, they lost interest, and they unfollowed Jesus. John 6, 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You thought we invented unfollowing. Nope. 2,000 years ago, there it is. Once the crowd figured out that there was nothing more in it for them, so they thought, they walked away. They couldn't see any further benefit to following Jesus. But because we are on the other side of the resurrection, we know that the man who told them that he was the bread of life proved it. Because we're on the other side of the resurrection, we know that the man who claimed to be the light of the world showed us. Though it might have been difficult for them to see, we don't have the excuse that they had. Here on the other side of the resurrection, we have every reason in the world to believe. So as we wrap up today, let's end on this question. Are we, all of us, just in this for the food? Which means that are, are, are we just in this whole Christian thing to see what we can get out of this Christian thing? To see what we can get out of Jesus? Because if we are, we really haven't yet understood who we're dealing with. Because you and I stand in the presence of the bread of life. We stand in the presence of the light of the world. And though we spin our wheels in life trying to come up with ways to obtain things that are not going to last... Jesus told us that if we will follow him, we already have access to the greatest gift of all, an eternity connected to the God of the universe. It's already there. Jesus has invited us to follow him. And you know something? Jesus' first century followers would end up shaping Western civilization. When you look back historically, you will see that Western civilization is what it is because of the people that call themselves Christians, the followers of Jesus. We will see that these followers of Jesus in the first century ultimately led to the shaping of the entire world. But the world wasn't shaped by the takers. That pl- it wasn't the takers that played an important role. It wasn't the what's-in-it-for-me people who changed anything. It wasn't the people who were just there for the food who made the difference. It was for the people who understood. It was for the people who got it. Those people changed the world. And we've been invited to join those people right here, right now, in our day, in our midst. We, the people of Jesus, can still shape the world. Now let me ask you this question. What do you think would happen if every Christian in the United States... For just two weeks, not asking for everything, just two weeks, would not ask God for anything, but would instead just love the people around them the way that Jesus called us to love. Two weeks, every Christian, just love the people around you the way Jesus has called us to love. Love God, love each other, love your enemies the way that Jesus loved us. What do you think would happen 
if every Christian in the United States for just two weeks would simply forgive everybody that they've been holding a grudge against, what do you think would happen if we did that? Just forgive. And what do you think would happen if just two weeks every Christian in the United States would consider others before themselves with regard to every single thing? What if every Christian in America would quit asking for things from God and be as generous and compassionate as God has called us to be? What if every parent, what if every child would be the parents and the children that God has called them to be? What if we all would submit to each other in the way that God has called us to submit to each other? What if we all could do that for just two weeks? If we did that, it would make the news. If we did that... The world would see it and they would notice and we would begin to become an entirely different place. You realize that we don't need anything else from God? The ancients who gave their lives to Jesus impacted the entire world. Think about what a, think about what a feat that was. 2,000 years ago, foreign culture, far, far away, no technology, nothing modern, no internet, no printed media. They realized that God gave them everything they needed. So the salient question is not, what do I get out of it? The question that will change everything for you and the question that will change everything for me is the same question that Jesus was trying to get his audience to focus on that day. Who do you believe I am? The ones who believe that Jesus was nothing more than a magic rabbi, they accomplished nothing. But the ones who would ultimately recognize Jesus as God who came to earth, once they quit asking and surrendered and followed him, in the end, they saw it, and the world began to change. God gave them more than they could ever have imagined because he gave them himself. So as I wrap up, i got to ask you, or i got to say to you, I hope you're not just in it for the lunch. Remember what we talked about up front? It's impossible to have an authentic, intimate relationship with someone from whom you're always just trying to get something. Instead, just say yes. Every morning, say yes. Every morning, give God your life. Let God lead you. Let God instruct you. Let God guide your steps every day. Live daily at the center of God's will. Surrender yourselves to God daily as a living sacrifice. Focus on constantly being faithful and available and generous and committed and loving. Be those ways that God has called you to be and allow God to move in you and to move through you and watch what happens. See, we have no excuse not to do that. God's already given us that which is most important. We get to call God our heavenly father. These things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of of his name. This is so much bigger than lunch. It means that we forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because we've been loved. This is a brand new kind of life. And once this practice moves from your head into your heart, you'll find that you're no longer just a God consumer. You'll be a God follower. So, what do you say? His followers changed the world once. And maybe Maybe this generation of followers will change the world again. Would you like to be a follower of Jesus?
you've seen and heard enough by now from the Apostle John, then, then you can right now in your heart and mind go to God, tell him, God, I get it, I get it. I believe it. I know that Jesus, God the Son, lived the perfect life and then allowed himself to be killed on a cross where, where he bore all my sins and he paid the penalty for all of my sins so I can live forever, God, with you. So, God, I want to turn from the way that I was doing things. I want to turn from my sin, and I want to turn to you, God, and I promise to obey you and follow you now and forever, and I promise to live my life no longer for myself, but only for your glory. God, I look forward to leaving a mark in this world all for you. Let's all pledge to leave Jesus' mark in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this story about the feeding of the 5,000. Thank you for helping us to understand what it means in our lives. God, as we continue on from here today, as we enjoy the rest of this holiday weekend, we would ask that we start devoting these days, these minutes, these hours to you. We start living for you. We start reflecting your glory to the world around us. God, use us, transform us, and through us, transform the world and bring a people to yourself. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.